morning and welcome to Rising. We've got a great show for you today. I'm really glad to be back. Uh, I was sick, which many viewers conveniently pointed out, and I don't blame you for thinking this, <laughs> that my illness, my sudden disappearance coincided with the release of the next Legend of Zelda game, <laughs> Tears of the Kingdom. Yes, this was a coincidence, but also I did play it for like 15 hours straight, and it was awesome. Let's just call that a happy coincidence, Robbie. I'm glad you're back. Thank you. We miss you. Thank you. I know how you feel about masks, and I understand, but at this point, I want to make you a, <laughs> an entire bubble boy so we never have to miss you again. <laughs> oh, well, that's, that's very kind. You have the best intentions, I know. Well, take, uh, take us away. I know we've got some big news to get into. Big, big news day today. Okay, John Durham, a Trump-era special counsel assigned to infamously investigate the investigation into former President Donald Trump's alleged ties to Russia, released a bombshell 305-page report, and after roughly four years, years, it found that, in fact, there was no collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia. And the FBI should never have launched a probe into the matter to begin with. Even CNN admits the report is a devastating blow to the agency and exonerates Donald Trump. Here's Jake Chap Tapper. Let's watch. Regardless, the report is now here. It has dropped. And it might not have produced everything of what some Republicans hoped for. It, it is, regardless, devastating to the FBI and to a degree, it does exonerate Donald Trump. Here are some major takeaways from the report. So Durham finds that, one, the FBI didn't have sufficient information to open the case investigating Trump's alleged ties to Russia. The Bureau relied on raw, unanalyzed, uncorroborated intelligence. Durham also criticizes the FBI's inability to corroborate any of the infamous Steele dossier, which contained a series of salacious allegations about Trump and his possible ties to Russia. The FBI operated with bias and different standards between Trump and 2016 Democratic presidential nominee Hillary Clinton. And finally, even though the report offers a scathing rebuke of the FBI's conduct regarding the Trump-Russia probe, it does not recommend any new charges against individuals. So this is, this is some big news. Uh, obviously, uh, people have been waiting for this report for a long time. Um, there might be some frustration from Trump and Trump-aligned officials that it doesn't recommend any new charges against individuals, so the, the practical consequences of this report won't be significant. But it does undergird and support a lot of what conservatives have criticized with respect to the FBI. Basically, this is one big confirmation. This is an independent official report saying, yeah, everybody got over their skis with this Russia thing. That's, that's what it found, essentially. I mean— Accusing people of having links to Russia has been an age-old tactic to ruin your political enemies. And back in 2016, it wasn't just happening to Donald Trump. They also immediately ran Chiron saying that Bernie Sanders was in cahoots with Putin after he won Nevada. So I think a lot of people rightly were suspicious about this throughout the left despite obviously not having a substantive policy alignment with Donald Trump, has been very critical of this kind of um, uh, Russia, Russia, Russia uh, obsession this whole time as well. Now, what's interesting about this is the timing of this acknowledgment in a lot of ways. Remember, we're coming off of the heels of this uh, CNN Trump town hall, which has been criticized roundly by liberals because basically they, they couldn't contain Trump. He was able to say a lot of things that are some mix of misinformation and inconvenient truths for the Democratic Party. 
But one of the things they really tried to pin him on was the idea that he was kind of uniquely um, anti-democratic by framing the results of the 2020 elections in a certain way, claiming that they were stolen from him. Now, obviously, his direct claims of election fraud are unsubstantiated and not the same as this. But he also made a cluster of other claims about how the election was rigged, including stuff like this and stuff like the suppression of the Hunter Biden story. And as this kind of news percolates, I think it does start to, you know, cause a voter to see things in less black and white terms and see Trump as someone who has been victimized by the deep state in ways that are as egregious in some people's minds as what, um, you know, Democrats are saying Trump is doing about election denialism. 100%. And a moderator who, again, who, other than Caitlin Collins, who better understand that, I'm not, not trying to knock her, I, I think she did well in some ways, mm. given the format and given what CNN expected, but a moderator who better understood what where conservative energy is now, what issues animate them, could have done exactly what you're saying there, could have drawn a difference or, or tried to get Trump at least to recognize a difference between the ballot box stuffing through the vote stuff right. he was bringing up, which doesn't have a lot of, doesn't have any legitimacy or evidence supported on its behalf. Right. A difference between that and the FBI uh, investigations and the smearing yeah. and the pressure on social media, and all of that stuff, which actually has a very, fairly robust foundation. And now we are seeing confirmation from this report that they, the, the, there, was, there was not evidence when they initiated this entire Russian smear campaign. Um, it, something that they tried to taint, as you said, not just Trump, but Bernie and others, it, it, it's... It's interesting, I think, to transport ourselves back to like mm -hmm. the 2016, 2017 time period, where just the the a whiff of Russian attachment was this. The, the mainstream media would descend upon you. It would just be wall-to-wall -wall coverage. There'd be headlines everywhere: CNN, MSNBC, New York Times, Politico, Washington Post, Atlantic about about the the stench of Russian involvement and collusion that was just overwhelming. I can remember talking to a, a, a mainstream journalist friend of mine at the time, mm. like tw this is 2018-ish, saying, wow, all the, we're seeing all the, the rumors about Trump's connections to Russia have basically all been confirmed. Mm. And I remember thinking, really? That's the, that's the direction you're going with this? You don't think this is like just the biggest smear of all time? So it's a little, it, it's edifying now to, to, to have so much of it um, uh, ca disproven or, or, or made to seem less legitimate. And I'm thankful to people like Jake Tapper, who, you know, well, say what you will about him, yeah. I think is much more willing than other people in mainstream media to concede right. when, when his side has had a losing argument. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, journalist Aaron Mate tweeted, Durham report underscores that Trump-Russia collusion was a Clinton campaign scam abetted by FBI deception and media stenography. Yet he doesn't touch Russiagate's core allegation, which is which the Clinton camp also generated and FBI media parroted, alleged Russian hacking of DNC. And Matt Taibbi writes, CIA head, ex-CIA head John Brennan read Mueller report, they found no conspiracy. Brennan on MSNBC, I suspected there was more than there actually was. Years of Trump-Russia hysteria based on suspicion only. It was Mickey Mouse intelligence. A dream is a wish your heart makes. Yeah. Furthermore, uh, House Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan said they reached out to Special Counsel Durham to testify on Capitol Hill next week. I was just, I was looking for, because um, I, I came across, I believe it was John Brennan making this claim. He was one of the foremost Russiagate truther type people um, saying that, I believe it was him, I'm going to find this quote. He said that um, he thinks 
uh, Russia had more to do with Donald Trump being elected than—or or more to do with Hillary Clinton being defeated than Donald Trump did. Mm -hmm. Which makes no sense. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't make any sense. Like, even at, at its most far-flung, even if you ended up accepting all these premises, which are false, about involvement, like, people didn't—people were not brain-controlled. Yeah. People did not—I'm going to vote for Glenn. Oh, like, I got the—like, they have an antenna, and they get the Russian signal, and then they switch their <laughs> vote. Like, that's as crazy and conspiratorial as anything that yeah. Trump is saying about the 2020 election, Look, to be frank. From the day that it was announced that Hillary lost the election, even before that, frankly, there was a campaign to prevent anyone from interrogating the role she played in her own loss. At no point was there any serious national consideration about what it meant for the DNC to rig the race in favor of a historically unpopular candidate, yes. the choices that she made not to campaign in key states that she ultimately lost, uh, the fact that she kept stepping in it and not making any kind of concessions to the youth vote who were clamoring, excited about this largely at before then unknown little senator from Vermont who managed to capture the world by a storm precisely because there was this vacuum in Hillary Clinton's own campaign messaging. No interrogation of that was allowed. Instead, all of the um, explanation for what had happened to Hillary Clinton was funneled into this Russia bucket. And it provided cover for her and the failures of her own administration, especially as kind of the Clinton blob continued to control so much of the Democratic Party going forward. It felt like they were unwilling to be vulnerable to any kind of critique. And now, all these years later, it seems like they have still not learned their lesson, and they're repeating many of the same things with respect to Joe Biden. And I'll just add that the existing media infrastructure of cable news, tel television, entertainment, of which Trump was an integral part for years and years and years, made into a celebrity by Jeff Zucker, the very person who had come to run CNN during the resistance time period. That's what gave Trump his power, his persuasiveness, his introduction to the American people as a, as a deal maker and a, and a celebrity statesman type person. That was done by the infrastructure we already have, not uniquely done by social media, given Russian interference. That was something they came up with, the existing media infrastructure, to excuse their own complicity in the whole thing. Yep. Putin's not quite as powerful as some people uh, at CNN <laughs> like to believe he is. No, not indeed. Well, we're going to keep talking about this later in the show. More rising right after this. Former attorney for pre former President Donald Trump, Rudy Giuliani, has been accused of sexual assault and harassment by a former employee in a $10 million lawsuit. Now, this lawsuit also includes allegations of wage theft and other misconduct, according to a complaint which was filed on Monday. Noelle Dunphy, the former employee who was hired by Giuliani in 2019, said that Giuliani was selling pardons for $2 million and that he and Trump would split the amount. According to the complaint, Giuliani told Dunphy she could refer individuals seeking pardons to him, quote, so long as they did not go through the normal channels of the Office of Pardon Attorney, because that would be subject to disclosure under FOIA. The 70-page complaint includes multiple instances of sexual harassment and assault on the part of Giuliani, including allegations, um, accusations that he asked Dumphy to perform oral sex on him in his apartment. The lawsuit also includes screenshots of conversations between Giuliani and Dumphy, including this one, where Giuliani said, good morning, my love, to Dumphy, and asked her if he could shower with her. <clears throat> yeah, so say we should revolted. say that. 
Yeah, the Giuliani did not uh, respond to Politico's request for, for comment. He has uh, generally reported, uh, his advisor has uh, reported uh, that he told the Associated Press that the former mayor vehemently denied the allegations and added that Mayor Giuliani's lifetime of public service speaks for itself and he will pursue all available remedies and counterclaims. Right, but we can see those texts, so that's... There's also, damning, in fact. yeah. I mean, there were a number of allegations, including um, that he persistently called her repeatedly. You know, the mm -hmm. kind of allegation that I would presume you have a call log to back up. It seems clear that he, they did work together. There are photo. There, there's at least one photograph of them together that's been reported out in this um, uh, Daily Beast uh, article. The nature of this. Uh, these allegations are all over the place. She alleges that he uh, was drinking constantly, and many of his remarks were made uh, in kind of an alcohol-fueled um, moment, that he was a, quote, you know, functioning alcoholic, that he started asking for bottles of alcohol around 10 a.m. There are a number of anti-Semitic comments, including saying that Jewish men have smaller genitals and that it's, quote, time to get over Passover because it was like 3,000 years ago and that black men and Hispanic men hit women because it's in their culture. I mean, it's a very damning— Hot take factory. <laughs> 70-page complaint. Yeah, look, I, I think— um... It shows the, look, Rudy Giuliani was, was not a character, it was not wise of Donald Trump to rely on Rudy Giuliani for advice at several critical points in his presidency. I think this further demonstrates, and look, he's a, you know, if he should deserve due process and all of that. Sure. This is not a criminal matter. This is an employee who says he mistreated her and she's, you know, presented some evidence to that, to that effect, maybe. Some of it is true and parts of it are not. Maybe all of it's true. Who knows? But it speaks to Giuliani's judgment, and his judgment was very much a factor in how Trump handled the 2020 election. Also, what got him in trouble in the first impeachment was, from my reading of it, my I came away thinking it was substantially Giuliani's fault, that Giuliani largely introduced the idea to Trump that he should hold out it was a complicated matter, but the, the Ukrainian issue and, and he, you know, a quid pro quo, wanting them to do something, to announce an investigation to the Bidens before they would get something from. It was, it was Giuliani who explicitly told Trump to frame it in that way. Mm. And thus, it, it, that, that's why I was a little, I, I was not as sold on the first impeachment the way it was pretty ironclad the second time around. Mm -hmm. The first time, there was some wrongdoing, but it wasn't as clear to me that Trump really, maybe this isn't a great defense of Trump, but that he really understood the the not great aspect of this. It was relying on Giuliani that really got him in trouble there. And then that was, again, the story of 2020. Um, Giuliani making outrageous claims on TV with his head partly melting that he could <laughs> not back that. up, that eventually got him even, it was embarrassing even to, even conservative media had to go and try to defend it, and they couldn't because it was impossible to do so. Um, Trump really did himself wrong by, in several ways, by relying on key people who were, who were bad. And Giuliani is, to my mind, forefront. Um, look, I know he had a sterling reputation from the 9-11 days, and if he'd just, like, <laughs> ridden off into the sunset after that, he would have been, like, you know, rightly or wrongly yeah, gone down might, in the history books. Yeah, he might be on a, a, a 20 dollars bill someday. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he has, uh, he, I think his reputation has soured, and it, that's yeah. his own doing. Yeah. So I take your point that there is no, um, well, there's no criminal wrongdoing. There is the, there are these wage theft claims. Apparently, Rudy Giuliani told um, Noelle Dumphy that he would pay her a million dollars a year. I think the complaint said that she got paid um, like 
$12,000 total. So there's a, there's a big uh, wage theft claim in, in, in addition well, to all the sexual— Well, he doesn't have any money because Trump didn't pay him for it, right? <laughs> Wasn't that a thing? <laughs> uh, th uh, Trump refusing to pay—I I, I remember the, when this was an issue. Yeah, Trump refusing to pay Rudy Giuliani's legal fees after falling out. Uh, Trump has told staff not to pay Rudy Giuliani over irritation at being impeached again. <laughs> yeah, okay, so that, that makes, that kind of assures up her claim somewhat about yeah. just not getting paid for her services. But additionally, there is this allegation out here that he was selling pardons for $2 million, which then he and Donald Trump would split the money. Now, obviously that's just an allegation. It doesn't seem to have been corroborated as of yet. Um, if it is, um, it, it does feel like that would be a much more substantive thing for people who are trying to prosecute Trump and Sure, but it also just to sounds after. to me like a boastful thing Giuliani would say. Um, what does that mean? What does that mean if your personal lawyer is telling people who are not protected by attorney-client privilege, that kind of a thing? Why would you even boast about the president of the United States being involved in a criminal conspiracy? It tells me, like to conspiracy? quote Arrested Development, I have the worst effing attorney. <laughs> 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 Trump found himself in a George Blue situation. I mean, look, when you look at this stuff, apparently he made her do work in like short shorts with the American flag on the back that he he purchased for her. That he said that he liked when for her to perform oral sex on him while was he was the on the phone because because it, <laughs> it made him feel like he was Bill Clinton. I mean, are any of these allegations in the world that we live in enough to change anybody's perception of Rudy, Rudy Giuliani or Donald Trump? Or is everything so deep in the muck already that this kind of thing just yeah, this is some like ephemera. '80s businessman energy. <laughs> Wolf, Wolf of Wall know. Street. Yeah, that kind of I mean, but stuff. It's, it's sad. And, and part of what's so sad about it is Giuliani making these kind of unprofessional disclosures on top of the sexual harassment, yeah. on top of the wage theft, on top of the, you know, the alleged, obviously, in no way proven, um, selling of, of, of presidential pardons. I mean, I, there is this, this thing that liberals used to say a lot with Donald Trump back in the early days that there, it's like gish galloping. He just does so much, and there's so much wrong that you can't get anything to stick to him. And it does start to feel, especially when you go into the universe of Trump-affiliated characters who are somehow mm -hmm. even more messed up. Well, right. And again, <laughs> I, I'm going to sound like a broken record here, but Trump did not pick the best people. And, and even if you want to set aside their best. <laughs> the personal, uh, like the color, the clown characters like yeah. Giuliani, you know, he Trump said he wanted a different foreign policy. He wanted to break with the neocon establishment. He wanted to do different things. And then he picks John Bolton, a very much of that, uh, actually not even a neocon, more of a just like, like reduce their country to ashes and yeah. we, you know, forget like building them back up uh, sort of ideology that totally clashed with what Trump said he wanted to do. So mm -hmm. I, I think that's, you know, I, I continue to think, and wouldn't it be great if at town hall events like the one CNN just had, he was pressed on his actual record from a Republican standpoint, from a conservative yes. standpoint. You said you want to do X, Y, and Z, but your administration did A, B, and C. Or, and you put in key figures. And, and you know, what, what about, you're saying the Twitter files, but it was your own agencies doing these things. But 100%. you're not gonna get that very vital criticism substantially you're not going to get it from the mainstream media with rare exceptions. That's right. Nobody is advocating on behalf of the actual Trump voters who I think in large part have been misled and at very least um, disappointed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. More rising right after this. Former President Donald Trump reacted to special counsel John Durham's report that in CNN's Jake Tapper's own words partially exonerates the former commander-in-chief of his alleged Russian collusion. Trump wrote this on Truth Social. 
Wow. After extensive research, special counsel John Durham concludes the FBI never should have launched the Trump-Russia probe. In other words, the American public was scammed, just as it is being scammed right now by those who don't want to see greatness for America. Very sad. It's like Trump is sitting right here, Robbie, truly. <laughs> an, an impression for the gods. <laughs> right? Okay, so just, just to be clear about you know, what is happening here. Mm -hmm. like fundamentally, what, what came out of this is that the FBI treated potential allegations of Russia interference with respect to the Clinton campaign very differently than they did the Trump campaign, which, again, keeping the political posture of everything in, in, in mind, is very significant as we look to what the election outcomes were. So this is from the Washington Post. Um, in particular, the report notes that while the FBI warned Clinton's team when agents learned of possible evidence by foreign, a foreign actor to garner influence with her, agents did not give a similar defensive briefing to the Trump campaign before quickly launching an investigation. So they warned Clinton, just started investigating Donald Trump. They said, went on to say that the FBI's handling of key aspects of the case was, quote, seriously deficient, causing the agency, quote, severe reputational harm. Now, the framing here that the FBI, the FBI was kind of the victim of some bad, bad people who ruined its reputation is interesting, because obviously conservatives have been hot on the tail of trying to perhaps defund the FBI, mm -hmm. do some serious reform of FBI and their overreach of power. So there is some interesting ways that the, the FBI is kind of protected, even as these significant um, admissions are, are being made. But when you go through the list, and I'm sure more people will start to unpack this 300-page report as time go, goes on, it's the difference of treatment, depending mm -hmm. on the kind of the political orientation of these two camps, that is so striking. And it's going to be very difficult for Democrats to defend. I was particularly interested in this part of the Durham report where they talk about the Steele dossier. Right. And they say that, um, that the FBI was citing the Steele dossier in its efforts to obtain um, a, a surveillance warrants against uh, a Trump campaign advisor. I believe that was Carter Page. Mm. Carter Page, I think, was his name. And, uh, and they were doing that at a point where it was already clear that the Steele dossier was being called into question. So they were operating, they were citing as evidence something that was already taking, they, like they can't say, oh, we didn't know it was BS yet. Yeah. Like people were saying, this is fishy. Yeah. And they were still using that to go after, member of the Trump campaign. That is, that, I mean, that's pretty bad. Uh, so he really goes after them for that. That, that shows you, um, and again, we should broaden that criticism of what they're doing there. Because I, I never want it to be just about Trump. Think how the government, think how the FBI, other law enforcement agencies can always find a pretext to surveil you, to investigate you, to, to do something. If, there, if there's any, if there's information out there that they already know is bad and they can use that to get a surveillance warrant against yep. you, that's what's wrong with this whole rotten system, the FISA system and other systems that were you know, set up as a result of national security's concerns is always, oh, it's for your safety, it's for your security, that we're just going to take all your civil liberties away and we're going to give the FBI and whoever else vast new powers to do anything on mere suspicion. And, and guess what? Conservatives who are all unhappy about how, how Trump has been treated very unfairly by 
by these bad people. You voted for this. You voted to, as did all Democrats, or right. most Democrat. You know, there's cranky dissenters on both sides. <laughs> your, you know, your 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 weird civil libertarians that uh, Democratic and Republican side who are virtually extinct. But yeah. and they were, you know, raising issues at the time. But most of the bipartisan consensus was to fully empower law enforcement to surveil Americans in the name of fighting. Back then, it was Al Qaeda. Right. And look and look at how this monster has mutated. Right. Since and then. it's still happening. One yes. of the very last um, segments that Tucker did before he left Fox was to cover the fact that in April, I believe, these uh, uh, four members of the African Socialist uh, Group were charged with election meddling with Russia, and the FBI raided their homes. Last summer, there was another raid of their homes um, when an elderly member was was kind of frog-marched out and, made, and asked to sit on the curb and kind of humiliated publicly in this way that... These very attenuated links to Russia, saying that you did this kind of a tweet or you said something like this on social media. And oftentimes, remember, a lot of the allegations of, of Russian um, influence uh, had to do with tweets that said things like, America uh, has racial inequality. Right. Oh, no. The Russians told me that America has racial inequality. I never they would have known that. They got to you, too, Brianna. I can see the <laughs> antenna. The African Socialist People's Party never would have realized that if Russia hadn't cleared yeah, them Yeah, right. In. No, it's this very lazy idea that if, if you're uh, buying into anything that that pro-Russian entities might be saying, that means you're captured by that interest or that like that. No, you, you might just agree. happen to agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's very, it was very bad and very lazy. Well, conservatives are now calling to defund the FBI, of course, in the wake of the Durham rebuke of the agency, and also pointing out that former Secretary of State and 2016 presidential nominee Hillary Clinton's role in the Durham report is suspicious. Greg Price writes, the Durham report notes that it is a crime to knowingly provide false information to the government, which seems to be exactly what Hillary Clinton and her campaign did with the Russia, Russia, Russia hoax. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I guess I would push back on that slightly. I mean, Hillary Clinton is an underhanded <laughs> political operative, you know, but she was campaigning. She was doing whatever, uh, do, she, I was going to say she was doing whatever she could to get elected, but she was not doing literally whatever she could do to get elected because she didn't like freaking campaign in Michigan enough. That would have been the obvious <laughs> thing to do. But uh, but she you know, she was raising all these dirty, sleazy insinuations. The Trump campaign did as well. So did the Obama and Romney campaign. Like every campaign does this. Um, I, I don't want to like detract from my focus on the FBI here because yeah. look, campaigns are gonna play dirty. They're gonna try they're gonna throw muck. Um, what was improper here is law enforcement operating on that. Law enforcement should have ig just ignored dirty campaigning. Like, you don't, don't become compromised by it. Don't actually take it seriously. So I don't know that this is so much of a case of, like, Hillary Clinton knowingly lying to the FBI as law enforcement, the deep state, the, the, the apparatus of, of the state, um, taking her side, being, right. being partial to her, to her side, wanting her to win. Yeah. And seeming to treat her with more credence than they would anyone else. Yeah, I think that's fair at this point. I mean, I do think that one of the object, object, objectives of a real FBI investigation would be the extent to see the extent to which Clinton and all of her power and the power of the Democratic Party and her allies within the Democratic Party who who have been in leadership positions and made appointments in the FBI or, or had this influence in the FBI, et cetera, for all of these years did play a more direct role in influencing the trajectory that the FBI took. I mean, when you see—this is going to be the concern, just to steel man the conservative position here for a second. 
When you see a clear difference along partisan lines with how potential foreign inter interference is treated, you can come to the conclusion that it was just an accident. You can come to the conclusion that the FBI, through no fault of Clinton, happened to have this built-in bias from previous years and previous administrations that had nothing to do with her personally. Or you can draw the conclusion that there was some bleed over um, and a, a preference for Hillary Clinton in the FBI wasn't completely separate and apart from what Hillary Clinton and her campaign's own preferences were. And this might be one of those things that is never fully discovered. Yeah. It might be something that doesn't exist at all. But I do think that given the possibility of there being a relationship there, I don't, I don't question why Republicans would be interested in having a more fulsome investigation and to be broadly distrustful of the FBI wants well, to be Well, and to wonder, defunded. which this is the way this should point now, how can anyone possibly trust the FBI to fairly adjudicate or look into the Hunter Biden matter? Yeah, it, it is interesting that the Democrats were so frustrated by the um, focus on Hillary Clinton's emails and the October surprise of it all. And there was there was some skepticism over the intelligence agency at that time, but it never really rose to the level of, I don't want the FBI to exist. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they're, they're out to get Hillary Clinton. And that is an interesting kind of uh, difference in the Constitution. The, Democrats uh, are the institutionalists. Democrats, again, I, I'll bring up uh, again that, uh, that survey from last week or the week before on trust in media outlets, yeah. where Democrats uh, trusted media outlets more than Republicans, even, even for conservative media outlets like yeah. the National Review, the Washington Examiner. That's because Democrats are the party that trusts, and Republicans are the party of deep skepticism now in, this, in our current Conf, conf, uh, arrangement of the two mm -hmm. of the two sides. So, so that doesn't surprise me at all. That Demo Democrats are institutionalists. They don't they don't want these things to go away entirely. They want reform, cautious, careful. Yeah. Maybe more funding for them. Maybe they'll clean up their own houses if they get more money or something like that. Yeah. Uh, Republicans are the are suspicious, suspicious, suspicious. We just need more kids from McKenzie to get in there and clean up the party, and that'll fix. Oh, it that'll all. fix it all. <laughs> that'll fix it all. Mayor Pete. Yeah. Mayor Pete to lead the FBI and every other agency. I'm sure that'll be great. From your lips to hopefully nowhere. <laughs> More rising right after this. Elon Musk has been issued a subpoena by the U.S. Virgin Islands in relation to its lawsuit against J.P. Morgan Chase. Now, the Virgin Islands are suing the bank over its relationship to convicted sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein. Musk has been ordered to hand over documents because prosecutors believe the CEO is a, quote, high net worth individual who Epstein may have referred or attempted to refer to J.P. Morgan, according to the court filings. Mm -hmm. Apparently, an attempt to serve Musk on April 28th failed. This week, the territory asked a federal judge in Manhattan to allow agents to serve Musk's subpoena with Tesla's registered agent instead. Elon responded to the subpoena online, tweeted, this is idiotic on so many levels. One, that Cretan never advised me on anything whatsoever. Two, the notion that I would need or listen to financial advice from a dumb crook is absurd. Three, J.P. Morgan let Tesla down 10 years ago, despite having Tesla's global commercial banking business, which we then withdrew. I have never forgiven them. Hmm. It is a little interesting to kind of admit that you hold a long-term grudge against a bank at the same time that you say you're not driven by, you know, you're not motivated to follow anybody's silly legal advice or that you would need to follow the advice of a crook like Epstein. Look, 
we all know right, about he's, him. He's not taking advice. He just has eclectic, <laughs> wild be, uh, opinions and behaviors that he makes major financial decisions based on. Right. So we know that he took a straw poll on Twitter to see if he should let Trump back on the app, a decision that hasn't resulted in Trump actually being on the app, by the way, as he continues to be over on Truth Social instead. Um, he, uh, you know, has admitted that the decisions about who he's going to let back on and back off are based on his own personal feelings or his own personal tragedies and not these kind of broad mm -hmm. free speech principles. He's someone who, as you pointed out during break, is often kind of replying to and seeming to take the lead of random joke parody accounts like T Cat Turd on the internet. Political sage. Catcher. <laughs> okay, but look, yeah, all of that can be fair, whatever. It doesn't necessarily have anything to do with this. Sure. And, you know, they, they, and it seems what JP Morgan Chase is, or I guess what the Virgin Islands is arguing here is that, I mean, what would even be the underlying potential criminal or concerning issue that Jeffrey Epstein would have said, hey, check out JP Morgan? And then he might have invested money in J.P. Morgan. So, that wouldn't even necessarily be, even if that was true, I'm not sure how damning that would be in so any way. So the, the Virgin Islands is suing J.P. Morgan for allegedly enabling and benefiting right. from Epstein's trafficking of young women. So what they want is documents from um, uh, Elon Musk. Right. So they're not really going about, after they're not Musk. Going after Musk. They just no. want more information. Exactly. They want to. They want to know if there is any knowledge in those documents that J.P. Morgan would have been aware of the conduct that was happening on Epstein's island and the abuse of women and girls that was happening there. Right. That that that's the crux, crux of it. So honestly. Elon doesn't even necessarily need to be especially defensive because he's not in the crosshairs. However, because I think in part he was so defensive in that tweet, uh, it has generated a lot of folks who are posting repeatedly the photograph of him with Jelaine Maxwell, who was the procurer for uh, for Jeffrey Epstein, and the you know the implication being that there was a much more substantive relationship that even this document request is getting at. And so there's this way that he's this defensiveness is kind of incriminating himself in a way that doesn't have to be the case. He could have just said, I'm happy to comply with any document request because I'm not guilty and I definitely d disapprove of everything that Jeffrey Epstein did. This this kind of response feels a little hit dog will holler. Well, no, I don't agree with that because it, it, you're almost doing that well. If you've got you've got nothing to fear, if you've got nothing no, to hide I'm, thing. I'm, no, I'm not, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying strategically from a comms perspective, I, this, this request doesn't even implicate him personally mm -hmm. in anything Epstein was doing. So why why call foul? Why why not just say, okay, I'm going to comply with the document request? If you have a legal objection to requiring with, complying with the document request, being the requesting documents that aren't germane to the actual litigation and that it's a fishing hunt, then make that case with your lawyers and contest it in court and don't don't I mean, provide those documents. I think that's fine as well. Fine, but I can also see, you know, if, if you have nothing to do with Epstein. Well, I, I <laughs> see saying, sorry, Virgin <laughs> Islands, I have nothing to do with this, pound sand. I think that I think that's fine too. I just I'm, I'm just describing the effect mm -hmm. of what his tweeting about it and engaging in this way on social media is doing, and I don't think it's hurt, it's helping him in the least. That could be the case. I guess it remains to be seen. Um, I, I'm interested by you know what, again what they're trying to really uncover here, and it's interesting. He did say Elon Musk did say I don't know what this story is that he it sounds like he did have a business relationship with jb morgan mm -hmm. they ended it and he's bitter about it mm -hmm. something like that mm -hmm. yeah i'm not familiar with whatever relationship they had in the past i mean jp morgan's a, a huge bank yeah. i would expect that almost anybody who's moving any kind of money in the world has had some relationship with jp morgan chase in the past it's kind of fascinating that this case is ongoing given the 
basically enormous stakes that are here for J.P. Morgan Chase. It seems like there is all of the incentive in the world to not want to go after a banking behemoth like this, especially in the U.S. Virgin Islands. It has so much banking business, and its whole economy is basically based on people being able to use it as a tax haven. It is it, it, it makes it a very interesting posture. I'm curious to see what happens. Um, the CEO, Jamie Dimon, is going to be deposed, uh, I think, later this month uh, on May 26th. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure that will result in some additional disclosures. It might end the whole thing. It might it might mean that there's very little that's coming out as they well, what we've stones. seen from the the uh, the employee who was working with Jeffrey Epstein was some truly disgusting, concerning messages uh, long after Epstein had gone away the first time for sexual misconduct with a minor. Um, really uh, messages that spoke to a deeper knowledge, frankly, yeah. of, of the despicable behavior that Epstein was up to, that I can't wait to see you again, that it was yeah. very gross stuff. Yeah, we talked about this. Again, like, we don't know how complicit so the entire bank is necessarily in this, but there were certainly there was certainly that guy knew what was going on. He he knew that there was <laughs> he knew something there was, was going on. There was on. definitely something going on. Um, yeah, this was a, an, a story from uh, February. Uh, Disney princesses in hot tubs. J.P. Morgan executives creepy texts uh, to Epstein. Go back and and, and listen to that. <laughs> that coverage that we did at the time. Yeah, what is, it is, I think at a certain point, unbelievable that the scale of what Epstein was doing and the amount of money that was being deployed to effectuate his crimes could have been unknown by everyone. Mm -hmm. And I think the question might end up being, does, is it just known to the lower level people, like the one that was profiled in the Daily Beast piece that I just read the title of, or did it go farther up the ladder and actually implicate people like Jamie Dimon? That is a really significant question. Typically, people higher up are very well insulated against these kinds of things. But we've also seen over and over again that there's a certain degree of hubris that it makes mm -hmm. people exposed. Yeah. He got Epstein got his money in the first place from what real estate investments those kinds of things. Oh. That's always the been part of the mystery so, to me. I, I thought it's not very well understood yeah, exactly. He came up from nothing. He he came up from absolutely he had no nothing to become educational background, insanely wealthy, and ended up being a teacher at Dalton. Yeah, through connections and personality and the sheer force of his interpersonal skills, it seems like. Managing uh, yeah. assets of clients at various, it's, it's just very, I don't know, it's very mysterious. Yeah, well, we'll de definitely continue to follow uh, this one as these depositions start to happen and more comes out. We'll see if Elon Musk makes any more uh, disclosures on Twitter as well. More rising after this. The IRS removed the entire investigative team from its long-running tax fraud probe of Hunter Biden in a retaliatory move against the whistleblower who alleged a cover-up. That is according to the New York Post. Now, whistleblower, the whistleblower's attorney told Congress that the removal was on the orders of the Department of Justice. This comes as special counsel John Durham's report found that, FBI, that the FBI should not have launched a probe into Russian collusion in the 2016 election. So this is interesting. So this whistleblower is part of the team that was doing this investigation into Hunter Biden and at the IRS and is no longer—they're basically off the case. Mm -hmm. He's not been fired, but he's off the case. And 
the whistleblower's attorneys are saying this is clearly retaliation for protected speech. There's a statute that protects whistleblowers. If he sees that something he thinks is criminal wrongdoing, he's supposed to come forward. He's supposed to alert Congress. He's supposed to do exactly what he did, and they can't the government can't punish him for it. They're saying the government is punishing for it because they moved him off this uh, th this investigation. Now, the other side of this, which I, I don't think is totally crazy, would be, well, but if, if you're a whistleblower and alleging that it's going wrong, of course there's going to be like a pause and a halt on your involvement while that's kind of adjudicated. Yeah. They can't fire, firing him would be retaliatory. Right. Um, but it, it's not, it wouldn't be normal to have him continue in that role while he's alleging that the process is screwed up and it's it's so so I I'm not sure this is retaliatory is I guess what I'm saying. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. It does seem like there's an obvious conflict of interest. It would be of course very inappropriate if he right. were fired and it also would be inappropriate if the claims that he were, was raising were sidelined along with his distance from the investigation, right? Just because he is no longer involved, it doesn't mean that should be the end of right. the the issues that he's raised as part of his um, whistleblower attempt. The reality is that, so attorneys for the whistleblower met with uh, congressional investigators earlier this month, and they laid the groundwork for what he will ultimately share with Congress. So there's preparations for an interview where he will be able to more formally disclose, it seems, his concerns with the ongoing investigation. And it does feel as though that indicates he will be heard, right? And his, his, his claims will be followed up on and elevated in the way that are necessary to make sure the investigation is actually carried out fairly. If that's not the case, then yes, I'd be very concerned about him if he's the only right. one in his team or the only ones that are raising these concerns being distant, being, yeah. being separated from the investigation. Yeah, and to be clear, given all the uh, all the funny business we've seen on the part of these law enforcement agencies, and you, know, you referenced the Durham report, Everything we've learned about how they handled uh, Ru uh, Russia, Trump, um, some previous indication of slow, uh, moving slowly on the Hunter Biden stuff. I would, I, I would be, I would understand reasonable skepticism that they're going to ha that they're going to handle or have handled looking into Hunter Biden's finances with the with the level of uh, of. Scrutiny. Expedience yeah. and scrutiny and seriousness with which they should. So I'm I'm totally willing to believe that there is something to what the whistleblower has to say. So let, let's definitely listen to that. Let's get to the bottom of it. Yeah. Um, I, I understand that thinking. I mean, it's it is also true that this has been a focus of conservatives for a while now. It you know we have a conservative house now. This is something that has been a priority of theirs, and as of yet, they haven't found the smoking gun that they were looking for. Of course, there were these inaccuracies with Joe Biden as he applied for his gun per permit, where he lied about having not uh, had the struggles with addiction on that form, and the inaccuracies in his tax filings. All of that is true, and I think it's perfectly fair for people to criticize him for that. But I do think that there has been a hope, perhaps, a politically driven hope, that there was more, including tying Joe Biden to perhaps inappropriate financial payments and a play for play mm -hmm. um, with some of his business dealings in Europe. Well, maybe there's more, maybe there's not, but can we trust the process to find the more if there was? I mean, I think That's the, the fact that there's a Republican House makes it more difficult for them to make the case that Democrats aren't appropriately investigating mm -hmm. this. So we'll see what happens. I, and I perfectly appreciate why there's so much skepticism for the reasons that we discussed before. But it is also possible that some of the 
enthusiasm around reporting this particular issue as a whistleblower retaliation, as opposed to what might, in fact, just be a pause in due course as the information is channeled up uh, to Congress in the appropriate way, is because in the absence of a real smoking gun, casting aspersions about kind of mismanagement in the FBI is kind of the best the best you got, which, you know, it's fine. Politics are what they are. Um, but there's this other uh, interesting IRS story uh, on the other side of things. Uh, the agency plans to release a report this week on the feasibility of a free government-run tax filing service as part of an effort by the Biden administration. The news caused TurboTax and H&R Block mm. stocks to drop. Now, there has been a decades-long war <laughs> attempt lobbying for et cetera by H&R Block, TurboTax, those kind of tax filing services to prevent something like this from happening. Many Americans have observed, hey, the IRS obviously knows how much I owe because if I don't pay it, they come a knocking. So why can't you just tell me how much I owe and I will pay my taxes and we don't have to have this middleman that extracts all of these resources from the American people once a year? It looks like I, I will give credit. I will give credit to Joe Biden for this one if it actually comes to fruition. This is actually a consumer-facing benefit to the American people um, that is long overdue, as far as I'm concerned. So, in theory, I agree that TurboTax bad. All the it's it's absurd that we have to pay some middleman to figure out what the government already seems to know. Um, my faith in government services of this sort is not high. So, like. What happens when this website like crashes a bunch and just utterly fails to deliver you this information you need? Um, but in theory, yes, I would much prefer if the government just told you what you owed and then you paid it, and that's that's fine. But um, yeah, I, I I don't know what else to say. That's fine. Yeah. But what, what's interesting is when you realize it's apparently but, a multi-billion-dollar. Uh, business, uh, these tax preparation services. Uh, TurboTax uh, has been a market leader for a really long time and has been on the forefront of uh, scuttling any attempts to to make themselves <laughs> irrelevant, obviously. Um, you know, and, and these fees are not insignificant, not to mention the fees that people pay with more complicated taxes to an actual accountant. This could be really transformative, and it is incredible that it's taken this long. It's, it's really a story about the power of lobbying efforts and uh, how much the interest of these business can really supersede the interests and obvious preferences of the people. I agree with all that, people. but what if we didn't have those and then it's just you're supposed to use the government website and it crashes the way that like the healthcare exchange websites kept crashing and no one could figure it out to get on with all that? People are signed up to Obamacare, they like Obamacare when there's threatened. I mean, there are big problems with it, don't get me wrong, premiums, et cetera. But whenever there's a threat to take it away, people get up in arms. The reality I'm not is- take it away, I'm saying the technical issues no, with the government-managed website Yeah, but the, problem, my, what I'm, the point I'm making is that there were problems with Obamacare. It was, a, it was a mess with the technical website, and yet here we are with the program ultimately after we got past it that people like and frequent and avail themselves of. So I don't, I don't think the idea that a website could mess up is a reason not to have a significant reform that could save people hundreds or thousands of dollars in filing their taxes every year and end a uh, extractive multi-billion dollar industry that's been preying on the American taxpayer. I, I think we can work out the kinks. I have no love for the industry, and I want to make paying taxes as simple as possible. 
or just get rid of paying taxes. Well, but I did see a piece over at Reason that argued that instead of this, that instead of this, that we should just simplify the tax code. I also support simplifying the tax code. Right. I don't think those things are mutually exclusive. And without some, you know, a real movement to simplify the tax code on the horizon, I'm really happy to hear about this. Mm. I, I mean, I have no love for turbo taxes. My taxes are real complicated, <laughs> given all our weird sources of income. That's true. This year was more complicated than most. Oh boy. All right, more rising right after this. CNN's primetime viewership dropped on Friday to 335,000 average total viewers from 8 to 11 p.m. This was below Newsmax's viewership, which received 357,000 average primetime viewers. The network also landed behind Fox News and MSNBC. On Friday night, no CNN show rated above 300,000 viewers. This all comes two days after CNN's town hall with Donald Trump last week, which has drawn widespread backlash. The network also trailed Fox News and MSNBC, which averaged a total of 1.44 million and 1.08 million viewers, respectively, during the same time slot. So these numbers are always a little confusing because there's the overall numbers and then there's the key demo, which is what, 25 to 50? To 54. Yeah, to 54, yeah. Um, which is uh, that number, it's obviously lower because it's a <laughs> lower proportion of the overall total. That's the number that matters a lot to advertisers. Is it has to do, so if they're doing it really well in that demo, it, they still might be making money. Mm -hmm. um, obviously the overall number, is more relevant, I think, when you're talking about Fox's numbers because their audience on average is older than the other cable news mm -hmm. networks. Um, so they might, and now Tucker, who has exited, uh, was the Fox host who did have a significant um, number of young people watching. So it's interesting to follow the numbers and how they're all going. CNN did get, what, 3.3 million mm -hmm. uh, overall for the town hall, which was a sizable boost over how that hour usually performs, although nothing like how the town halls with the Bidens and Trumps and Bernies and et cetera did in the, in the fervor of election season. Now, you would expect those yeah. numbers to go up if they're doing town halls closer to the 2024 election. Yeah, so in October of 2020, we just went back and looked at this, Biden's town hall did 14 million Trump's town hall did, I think, 10.9 million. Huge numbers over mm -hmm. all of this. And so the, the question that many people are asking, given the backlash against CNN for hosting the Trump town hall, is whether or not making that deal with the devil was worth it if the long-term ratings gain isn't there, and perhaps you've... Yeah. You've, you've ruined your repu rep uh, reputation with some of your longtime viewers. I mean, if you're like me and think it was not a deal with the devil and you should absolutely <laughs> be covering the guy who is very likely to be, uh, at least somewhat likely to be the Republican presidential candidate and somewhat likely to be the next president, you should absolutely cover him. You should do things exactly like this. Now, I would have done it somewhat different, as we've talked about in many other segments. But no, you just have to do it. You can't shy away from covering the news. Then then I would say, yeah, OK, you, you got a numbers boost. That's that's to be expected. Right. And but I, mean, I think in all fairness, the question isn't, I mean, for some people, the question is whether they should have done it. But there is an additional question, which is, you should have done it, but did you do it right? Did you do it in a way that was got news value, right. where you actually got, you know, Trump to respond to the answers from the people in the crowd that were Trump Yeah, nobody except Chris Licht thinks they did it right. I, I, 
I think that's right. And, and there were some things that he said in his briefing to the staff where he congratulated them for making news. And some of the reporters were yeah. pushing back, saying, it's not our job to make news. We're supposed to be reporting on the news. And are there some perverse incentives happening over at CNN? I think that's a fair question. So I don't agree with that. I, I think they are supposed to make news. I don't, I don't think they substantially did make news during the interview, is what I would say. We mostly retread well, very familiar. They made the wrong familiar. kind of news. They made a media story instead of a politics story. Well, they made story. it a story. They made news in that they made it a story about themselves. Right, they exactly. shouldn't do that. Exactly. They should make news. Yeah, this, this was interesting, this debate on social media. There was a lot of people actually on both sides. Even probably some people in our camp being like, well, that's the job is to, well, AOC said this too, but then like every, a lot of people were saying this, their job is to cover the news, not make news. But by make news, what we mean is their, their job is to get you, is to um, learn some new truth. Yeah. You get, get some information. answer out of Trump yeah. that you hadn't heard before, get him to weigh in on something new, and that's making news, and that would have been valuable. We almost, we almost down the line, retread familiar ground uh, with, with the election stuff in January 6th, with his positions on a lot of other things, with, you know, she tried to get, will you agree to, to recognize the winner of the next presidential election regardless. And he said, well, I will if it's a fair election. And then they went back and forth on that. Like, what? This is not helpful. This is a waste of time. Yeah. And He's the, never going to say anything other than that. And to the extent that there were some new things that started to come out, um, I think there was some weird kind of tiptoeing around whether or not he would withdraw from Ukraine or cut yeah. the military budget and stuff like that. He wasn't pressing those kinds of issues. He seemed to recognize that it was politi politically disfavorable for him to co-sign the idea of a federal abortion ban. And there was some pushback on that, but not a solid answer from him on whether or not he would, let's say he wasn't asked the question, would you veto a, a federal abortion ban if it came to your desk? So we have no idea what he actually feels about it. He just kind of said, well, you know, it's good that the state's have it, and uh, I did a good job getting Roe overturned because now uh, mm -hmm. uh, anti-choice groups have leverage. You know, so I do think that there was a much more potential for real substantive newsmaking sure. in the good way. That Ron DeSantis supports an abortion on. ban at this level. Do you think that's a mistake? And what should the Republican Party do? Right. And then he lays into DeSantis. That would have been making news. Right. But they didn't do that. Right. No, it became a media news story about whether or not uh, Trump is sexist to Caitlin Collins, or whether Caitlin Collins did a good job, or right. whether CNN. That's Making the wrong exactly, making the wrong kind of news, yeah. making yourself the network the news, yeah. which is not something that serves the interests of democracy, or I don't even think it really serves viewers particularly well, and it causes all this media infighting. So, uh, so yeah. interesting to see the decline. So the numbers, you you remarked this before we started this segment. All of those numbers seem kind of small yes. and insignificant. I mean, that's I guess it's unfair to compare. That's the number of people tuning in live to a broadcast. Sure. People don't tune in live to us. But over the course of a day, over the course of 24 hours, we have almost a million most days people who will watch our commentary on one of our videos. And it's not an apples to apples comparison. Sure. But uh, and and you know and there are other people on YouTube bigger than us. So it's uh, for all the attention uh, for all the attention cable news gets. It's just serving a smaller and smaller audience. Is that an argument for Tucker Carlson's new Twitter show? I think so. Uh, I think that will be something a lot of people are watching. And as I've said before, I think it will have a substantial impact on the tone of, of the discussion about how to regulate social media. I think it will, is right now there's a lot of bipartisan interest in doing it. I think Republicans will back off it substantially because a lot of the proposals they're discussing are ones that would actually impact 
um, Tucker and Elon Musk in this exact way, mm. if, if implemented, the whole Section 230 change, mm -hmm. to make social media sites more liable for content. That's something that both Democrats and Republicans want to do right now. Mm. <laughs> we'll see how that holds up. Mm. I have. A, I should write something about this this week in a longer. I might actually do a radar on it. I know we've been, uh, we've been we haven't done radar in a while. Radars. We've been slacking. <laughs> we just have so much news to bring you. It's we don't true. have time to do it, but we will be bringing them back soon. So uh, All right, I'm looking forward to it, Robbie. All right. Well, we will continue discussing this, of course. We love to bash some uh, some cable news competitors <laughs> and their piddly audiences. More rising right after this. Elon Musk picked a fight with George Soros and made an interesting comment about Soros. He called him Magneto, the comic book supervillain. I'm definitely going to talk more about that to Brianna's <laughs> utter delight in just a second. But why is he fighting with Soros? Well, maybe because Soros apparently, according to the, uh, the Washington Post, uh, has sold off all its Tesla shares. So it could be that this is retribution. Um, Musk tweeted a whole bunch of anti-Soros things uh, in the in recent days. So, but but then people. So this is very interesting because Magneto is a, specifically a Jewish supervillain. Magneto's backstory is that he's a Holocaust survivor. So Magneto is from the X-Men. He's a villain in the X-Men uh, comic books. He's in all the X-Men movies. He's played by Sir Ian McKellen as an older man, and actually by Michael Fassbender in the prequel it's ones. A great job. Love uh, both Fassbender. are fantastic. Yep. Uh, he, he's a a really compelling character because his background as a Holocaust survivor actually is what motivates him. It, almost in like a, he's often compared to like a Malcolm X. Mm. Like he's the extremist. Mm. He wants to to create a, a separate world for his people, for mutants, because humans will never understand them and will always try to put them down. And uh, and 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 he has this friendship with uh, with. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. There there it is on screen. The, that's the character in the. In, he has this helmet. And his oh his power is to manipulate magnetic fields so he can move mm -hmm. metal. In one mm -hmm. movie, he moves like the entire Golden Gate Bridge. It's mm -hmm. kind of ridiculous. No, I remember. It was great. It was great. <laughs> so, but people are saying that Musk basically did an anti-Semitism. Right. Which, so let's, let's, that's a little preposterous. Let's, let's read the whole shebang. Okay. So Elon shebang says, us away. <laughs> Soros reminds me of Magneto. Then one of the Krasenstein brothers, Brian Krasenstein, follows up saying, fun fact, Magneto's experiences during the Holocaust as a survivor shaped his perspective as well as his depth and empathy. Soros, also a Holocaust survivor, gets attacked nonstop for his good intentions, which some Americans think are bad merely because they disagree with his political affiliations. To which Elon responds, you assume they are good intentions. They are not. He wants to erode the very fabric of civilization. Soros hates humanity. Maybe he just hates Tesla, but <laughs> so right, like so again. There's this yeah. Elon retribution angle where he's just mad at Soros for selling off all his stock. Um, people, I agree, it's not a direct reading, right? But even folks who are more conservative uh, aligned, some Radley Balco, who formerly of Reason Magazine, tweeted that, "Look, I've I've worked for two co-funded groups and no Soros-funded groups, and that this tweet is seriously effed up. Musk is tossing slabs of red meat to the most deranged, dangerous factions of the right, and it's looking less like opportunism and more like he's just one of them." People have put this in concert with other changes on the site, a lack of moderation that has allowed certain kind of hate group speak to proliferate. And maybe you think that's fine. Allegedly. I don't know how borne out that is, but. All right. OK. Um, and combined with some of his other tweeting patterns, who he responds to, the kind of tweets he's been liking. He tweeted out um, some memes about um, black on black crime and certain other kind of tropes that were 
factually mm -hmm. inaccurate. There's like this edited Are they graph. factually inaccurate? Yeah, because I think it's 85% of crime, of, of black crime is against black people. 83% of white crime is against white people. And then there's the outliers that are very much lower. And there's a graph that cuts off those huge chunks of same on same crime to make it seem as though the most prevalent kind of crime is black on white crime and that that kind of crime is underreported. My so understanding can, is the graph post... is only about crimes committed by one racial group against another. No, there's, another. A, there's an edited graph that people have been been sharing around. And so that's that's what people are saying is misleading. Like, you can say that that's fine, but that's, you know, it's an edited graph. So that combined with a number of other memes make people feel like Elon Musk is, like, fully red-pilled, even folks that aren't especially liberal-leading. You disagree? Well, I think he, he is very red-pilled, but I, I don't think this is evidence of anti-Semitism. So, of course, like, this is all throughout the Washington Post article. They're quoting the Anti-Defamation League, saying that this is... They're condemning this as playing into anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. Uh, again, I don't see what. Look, you can. It, it, you're not a crazy conspiracy theorist or an anti-Semite or a hateful person if you disagree. You can disagree with George Soros's policies. Mm -hmm. I probably agree with some of them and disagree with others. And like, I mean, he he has massive influence. He spends tons of money helping to elect people who who support his policies. I think that's his right to. You might actually disagree. I think that's totally fine within the realm of how campaigns are conducted, but you can complain about his... It doesn't make you an anti-Semitic conspiracy theorist to think his influence is bad or, or not, not want him to have this level of influence or think that the policies that he's trying to achieve are not good. Certainly some people who criticize him going too far, and we've seen the, you know, the anti-Semitic memes, yeah. that kind of stuff, there's an element of that, but substantially the criticism of him is a criticism of... The priorities he has, and I'm not even saying I share that criticism. But and then, in, additionally, with the with this tweet specifically, just because this character has a Jewish origin doesn't mean comparing. I mean, George Soros also right has a Holocaust. He survived origin. the Holocaust. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, so making that parallel is it's like a bi biographical. Well, it was it was Brian Krasenstein that makes the parallel. The question isn't making the parallel. It's that you know maybe it's an issue of taste, but a lot of people would say that if you bring up that someone as a Holocaust survivor might have an interest in certain social justice activities, even if you disagree with them, a lot of people, given the magnitude of that horror, would tread a little bit more lightly and, and show some deference and respect to what it was that they survived and not double down on, no, 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 he's evil. And I think that is, that is what people are responding to in combination with the broader universe of how Elon Musk has been tweeting of late. So, for example, he's been responding a lot to this end wokeness account that was tweeting this, um, you know, he, he, tweeting about how, why don't we know more? Why does it seem that we know so much about the shooters when they are shooters who are kind of right-leaning, but not anything about certain other shooters, like the trans shooters, that, that may or may not be left-leaning, mm -hmm. right? Like, we, we don't know very much about that person. Well, we, haven't, haven't we ourselves asked that very question? Sure. But the last part of the tweet is that, is, is, uh, that he's responding to is, Hispanic male shoots at mall and kills several white people one day later. White supremacy. Well, that's not exactly conjecture, nor did it take a rocket scientist to come to the conclusion that that guy was a white supremacist, given that he had tattoos. enormous swastika tattoos all over his body. So what is the implication of, of Elon Musk responding to that tweet? Odd. Is it odd that the news would report that a man with swastika tattoos shot a bunch of people and that swastika tattoos are literally the sign of Nazism and white supremacy? Yeah, I odd? mean— Look, there's often a yeah, I, I agree with what you just said. There's often a a kernel or more than a kernel of a 
of a good idea or an intriguing idea or something that bears further investigation in some of these observations, like that, like the, the, the media's gr greater interest in in some of the mass shooters and seeming lack of interest in the one that might have gone counter to their usual playing favorites teams kind of thing is interesting and, and we are a little more curious about that and then you can take that too far and right start to go into conspiracy territory and that's uh, I, I, I mean I wish Elon would hold himself back a little bit I guess but you know he's his own person he's bought Twitter he can make it his playground yeah. um, he has put now somebody else in charge of on paper, at least, CEO of Twitter. Um, I'm calling her Shilon, but that doesn't seem to have caught on yet. <laughs> Keep uh, trying. Make and that happen. some right-wing people were a little upset about her because she's from comes from the World Economic Forum. Right. And from, uh, and was it NBC News? Uh, I, I don't some, remember that part of it. I think it was NBC. She had a mainstream news background. So I think some people are on the right are worried that, uh-oh, the, the mainstream... Uh, the Hydra's got its tentacles into... Yeah, he, he's all over the place, to be honest, right now. It's it's not clear that he's doing things that are advantageous for him financially. I don't think that he's making decisions that are going to want, want to make advertisers come back to the site. It's not clear how the Tucker Carlson Twitter deal will actually affect the long-term financial viability of Twitter, which is struggling right now. Um, you know, advertisers have concerns. It's not, I think, a left-right issue. I've said this a million times before. It's money. And most advertisers don't want their post next to anything that is promoting Nazism or white supremacy or whatever, even if you think from a free speech perspective that should be allowed in the public discourse. And as a businessman, Elon Musk has to make certain kind of decisions. People selling off his stock, te Tesla stock, plummeting in the way that it has done since he bought Twitter. These are, these are consequences of decisions that he's making that he's going to have to live with. And, and he, just, just to point out, there, another, another one of the, the tweets that people are pointing to saying that he's going down a rabbit hole um, Chernovich, uh, tweeted, um, some stuff and, well, let, let me not do that one. So he tweeted, for example, in, in response to the, uh, the protesters following the Neely, um, death on the subway, there were a bunch of people occupying the subway tracks that were protesting for, uh, Penny to be charged. He had not been charged at that time. And Elon Musk asked this refrain that many conservatives have been asking, why didn't they protest the children who were murdered at the Christian school? They are disingenuous. And so, again, there's this framing of, you know, that somehow they're out to get Christianity. I mean, how many black churches were gunned down by white supremacists? How many synagogues have been gunned down by white supremacists? Sikhs have been attacked by white supremacists. And there are protests when the perpetrator is not killed on the scene and is not arrested or is arrested but treated very well. The way that, uh, what was it, Dylan Roof, who was taken to Burger King and, and escorted so gently, it seemed, to the car. Protests are about people feeling like they need to protest just the justice system not working appropriately, not just randomly someone got killed, so we have to protest. You have to protest something. And so there was this, there was this way that people who continue to try to act as though there's this victim mentality where we don't care about the death, the murder of the, all of those kids at that Christian school. It was horrible. But without evidence of it, there's all this dog whistling that says, oh, they're out to get white Christians. They're out to get, they're out, they're out to get us. Then they, they only care when they die and not when we die, which I don't think is an accurate representation of what's going on, and which I do agree with your former colleague from Reason, is throwing red meat to people, regardless of what Elon is intending. It is feeding a movement that is undeniably, based on FBI reports, is growing. Well, I mean, you can—I I, I understand what you're saying. I, I think the media specifically—like, how much attention we give 
right? Like, yes, the Jordan Neely, regardless of how you feel about it. Um, the, the choice to make this as big a story from a media perspective involves some decision making from media actors sure. where you know we uh, how many you know crime stories have we covered in the last month or so where where more people die or more or it's 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 random it's horrifying it you know kids gunned down some of those big national news got a lot of coverage a lot of them didn't get nearly as much coverage as this and without trying to impute any conspiracy or any I'm not trying to make anyone paranoid about the decision making that goes into that but the uneven nature of that can cause you to question well why yeah. and is it because it speaks to the polit something like what happened to Jordan Neely speaks to the political or the policy views of the people making decisions in media I think some of that is true I also think frankly you know, there are so many, most gun crimes happen like mm -hmm. in urban areas, uh, gang violence and things like that. They don't get very, very widely reported on. And there's an implication that, well, no one cares about black and black crime. We're only reporting on interracial crime because it's galvanizing and it confirms one narrative or the other. Right. I do think there's some of that, but I think a lot of it is that we report on crime that makes us feel implicated as more affluent people who are not in the middle of gang violence. Like, it's a kind of out of sight, out of mind mentality. And what was so, I think, provocative about the Jordan Neely story is how many people, especially writers in New York, who are writing and covering and making, you know, comprising the right. press, feel like that could have been me. I could have been, I've been on the train. I've seen panhandlers. I've seen violent interactions on a train. Right. You know, people can put themselves in those shoes. The, the the tax with the homeless in the San Francisco, it's all about, well, I could be vulnerable. My class doesn't protect me from these kind of attacks and this kind of violence. That's why those stories well, get again, covered. Well, and again, and that's media choice and, and, and media bias too. both ways. Right. We, I talk about this, and I think this is one of the most pernicious things media coverage does in general, is give people false impressions about sure. what the relative dangers or harms are. I mean, most people who die by a gun shot themselves. Correct. They, they died by suicide. Yeah. But that doesn't generate the level of coverage. And then, and then yeah, and then it's a lot of one-off gun homicides that are crime-related, sometimes domestic disputes, yeah. workplace disputes, fights with neighbors. Um, the hateful person guns down people is not very common. Yeah. It happens. And how do you cover it in a way that doesn't make people think that intuitively that, oh, yeah. this could happen to me, this could happen to my kids. Yeah. This no, could, even even the, like the, sure. there has been an increase in subway crimes, for but sure. we're talking about from a small number to a larger number, but still a small number relative yeah. to, the, to the overall crime, even the overall crime being perpetrated in New York or yeah. anywhere else. I mean, look, I, I think that's right. And I would also just say that I could sit here and say, well, why haven't we heard more about the white guy that shot up all his coworkers at the bank a month ago? Remember right. that one? Oh, my gosh, it's a conspiracy not to talk yeah. about white-on-white -white crime. I mean, I right. think there were diverse people that he killed. But why, why are we talking about that white guy? And I can like, respond, what about the graduation party right. where a bunch of black kids got killed Right, well, that, black that was black. And, black. Yeah. But, but, yeah, like, yeah. so we can sit here, but Elon Musk playing that game, I think there are, there are times when there is media bias and there is an interest in a story because it promotes one narrative or another. But I think we should just be careful about looking to other factors, specifically the protests point that a lot of conservatives have been making. Before you make that point, before you make that argument, check and see are, what they're actually protesting. If they're actually protesting someone not being arrested or not being charged with a crime, that's legitimate. And that's not something that has to do with like the racial profile of this of the scenario. The best thing you can do here to like not convince yourself that, oh, they're only covering this or they're never covering what is to to 
follow news sources that reflect all sorts of different perspectives. Yeah. So if you're paying attention to what CNN is saying, you're also keeping tabs on what Fox is saying. You're following accounts. on If Twitter is your main place you're getting news, you should be following accounts on all sorts of sides, not just listening to Cat Turd. Yeah. End wokeness. At end wokeness. Is end wokeness. <laughs> and then listen to, I don't know, find some uh, find some super woke account. Find out who's the, the lady that hosts the uh, the dinners where she makes white people feel like racist. Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> no. Sa- Sarah Rao. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. We're rising for you right after this. Conservatives are calling out the Pulitzer for awarding journalists who reported on Russian collusion in the 2016 election in the wake of the Durham report, which has found that the FBI should not have launched a probe into the issue, or at least the evidence they used to springboard that uh, was not persuasive. Florida Republican Byron Donalds tweeted, ready to give your Pulitzer back now in response to a Washington Post tweet from 2018 promoting their coverage of the so-called Trump-Russia collusion. Mm. Back in December of 2022, former President Donald Trump sued the Pulitzer Prize Board for defamation, arguing a statement by the group that concluded a review conducted of previous claims he made defamed him. Writer for Jacobin Bronco Marchetich tweeted, similar to the original laptop story, the bigger scandal of this House report is not so much the corruption, sadly endemic in U.S. politics, in which Biden's family has a long record of, but the media's decision to pretend it's not happening slash newsworthy. Yeah, as I remarked in our earlier coverage of this, it is just incredible to me to reflect back on a time not so long ago in U.S. political history, five years ago, the 2016, 2017, 2018. I think that's really when Russiagate reached its fever pitch. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, a time when it was just this constant refrain from the mainstream media that Trump— Russia collusion was so self-evident, had been so handily proven that there was a deliberate effort by Russia to make Trump president, that it particularly was uh, in effect in social media, that that was the defining factor of the the U.S. 2016 election, that it was stolen from Hillary Clinton, that there was something illegitimate or even rigged about it, that she didn't win because of what Russia had done, the Trump campaign was aware of and participated in it. That was the refrain. You heard it from all these media outlets, and and people won awards for, for... picking at those threads and trying to elucidate them for mm-hmm. the public. They they won journalism prizes for that. And I think this is totally fair to look back at that reporting, which, again, was awarded, was celebrated by other by a panel of journalistic experts and said, yes, this is the thing we want to celebrate this year, the great work exposing this web of corruption and connection that we now know just does not have the basis in reality. Yes, Trump, yes, Russia wanted Trump to win. Yes, it made some kind of ham-fisted efforts to sow division in U.S. Uh, discourse, just like everyone else was doing, just like the Clinton campaign was doing and the Trump campaign was doing. They were, they were trying to influence you on social media and cable news and everywhere else. Russia, some Russian actors participated in that effort on social media. These efforts were seen by a small number, a sliver of voters. Not, it was not at all uniquely individually targeted to these swing voters in Michigan, Pennsylvania, yeah. Wisconsin, Ohio. 
Um, it, it just it, it is to compare it to what the candidates themselves were doing and saying to what cable news and talk radio were mm -hmm. doing on behalf of those candidates for 24 hours every day. It's just nuts to say, oh, that was the thing. That's what got people. Yeah. So remember, the, the, what the Durham report says is that while some of the stuff that was floating around, Steele dossier or whatever, might have been enough to provoke an initial investigation, there was not enough information following that investigation to justify launching a probe. There was no justification to launching a probe, yet the character of the reporting was very much a kind of informal probe-style deep dive that apparently did not discover the flimsiness of information that the FBI apparently realized made it so that there was, no, there was no there there. There was no justification for even a further investigation in the eyes of the FBI, according to this report. But our intrepid reporters seemingly did not realize that. There was very little—even even when it became clear that the Steele dossier was a nothing burger, there, were, there was a, a, a real gap between the enthusiasm with which it was initially reported and follow-up reporting explaining that it wasn't true. And there are people today who believe that there's a, a P tape and breathless hope that something like that is going to materialize, et cetera. One of these days. You know, so for, so for these Pulitzer Prize to be, prizes to have been awarded for that kind of reporting, which is now revealed to be the opposite of investigative reporting, it does tarnish the institution. I did a quick Google to see if there is any kind of precedent for withdrawing a Pulitzer Prize. Apparently, back in 81, there was a feature writing prize for a Post reporter that was withdrawn uh, after she admitted that her story was made up. <laughs> so apparently it's a thing that happens. And, and, and again, it's not clear what the specific prizes were, were awarded for story-wise. It could be stories that were inclusive of but not solely about um, the Russia collusion, such that there was still something of journalism merit, uh, journalistic merit and value there. Who knows? But certainly people like Ted Cruz, who are upset about this, I think are, are, are justified. He tweeted, uh, disgraceful. Obama-Biden officials and the corrupt corporate media pushed these piles of lies for years. Accountability now, starting with Washington Post and the New York Times, returning their Pulitzer Prizes for breathlessly spreading these Russia, Russia, Russia lies. And it's, it's just—it's not hyperbole to say they were doing that. It was, bre it was breathless. It was constant. Yeah. It was constant for years. And, uh, and there was just no self-reflection. I don't know what— captivated the mainstream media about this narrative so much? Was it the, the a, a kind of James Bond or 24, like it had a narrative like, oh, Russia, I the Manchurian president, that was the intriguing part of it? I have a theory, and I, I've taken this somewhat from uh, my former colleague Nathan Robinson at Current Affairs magazine. He wrote a pressing article early in 2016 that predicted Trump's win. And part of his argument was that if the Democratic Party nominates Hillary Clinton, she is uniquely poorly situated to call out what the worst things about Donald Trump are in terms of his embeddedness with Wall Street, his cor corruption, et cetera, because she was subject to the exact same types of criticism. So throughout that entire primary race, you know, you, you couldn't get her really digging about the sexual misconduct of, of Donald Trump either because she had her whole Bill Clinton baggage. Point for point, the most vulnerable aspects of Donald Trump Hillary Clinton couldn't touch because she was vulnerable at the same time. And, and obviously, you know, Nathan's case was that Bernie did not have those vulnerabilities. He was the perfect person to call out corporate corruption and be a real populist in contrast to Trump. And you can feel how you feel about that. But I do think there's something to the fact that because Hillary was limited in the ways that she could attack Trump substantively, it became this shell game of talking about 
his like the cultural aspect of Trump and the rude things he said and the racism and all of those kinds of things, as opposed to is he going to live up to his promises? Is he who he's saying he is? Is he someone who's really unbought and unbothered and unbossed and someone who can really drain the swamp? Hillary didn't have a leg to stand on when it comes to who's more likely to drain the swamp. Do you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. And, and so that's part of why we didn't get the more substantive journalism and critiques and why people were so happy to find an excuse to go after Trump like this, Russia, Russia, Russia. Well, and then we should talk about Hillary's own complicity in this. She was a sore loser, which, and then four years later, Donald Trump was the king of sore losers, so, you know, sure. fair enough. But she, and it's interesting how she leaned into this, not to the degree Trump did in saying the whole thing was illegitimate and, you know, pointing to stuff ballot boxes that don't exist, that kind of thing. But she did use stolen uh, kind of uh, stolen election rhetoric to describe yes. Russian malfeasance here. Yeah. That's what she pointed to as the reason for her loss. She took, she owned no responsibility. She did not talk about her disastrous campaign, which failed to invest in these swing states that decided the election. She, she did not visit them enough. She did not actively campaign in them. She did not try to reassure the Bernie supporting Rust Belt, working class union people who clearly saw something in Donald Trump that she would be their candidate. She wrote them off. In fact, she had unkind things to say about them. She she just she wanted she thought there'd be enough millennial and, and there were. I mean, she got she won the popular vote, yep. but that doesn't matter. You have to win the electoral college by playing the game as it's laid out, and she refused to do that. It's so obvious in retrospect. It, it should have been obvious going into it that that was her vulnerability. That was the failure, but she didn't. That, that, that reflects on the candidate and her campaign manager, the evil Robbie, Robbie Mook. <laughs> and instead of, instead of criticize, the self-criticism, they, they reached for this Russia did it um, narrative. And because, I don't know, she has friend, some friends in media. Obviously, she's been treated badly by the media in some contexts. Sure. But, uh, but the media, they, they took that walk with her. They took that journey with her. Yeah, I'm reminded by, by this. Her margin of loss in Wisconsin I think it was like a twenty odd thousand votes. Yeah, we're, it, basically this, it was sixty thousand votes across, across three states. The country. This is from a story that came out in those in, the th way, no, in those three in states those three specifically. States. Yeah, there were eighty eight thousand black voters in Wisconsin who voted in twenty twelve who did not vote in twenty sixteen, mm -hmm. and I would argue it's not because they were indifferent to Trump or racism or they were privileged or any of the arguments that were circulating in the wake of Hillary's loss, and it certainly wasn't because there were Russian agents. Although the FBI investigating the African Socialist People Party might have something different to say about that, but no, it's because Hillary Clinton didn't respond to criticism she was getting from the black community, the super predator comments, all of that. She mm -hmm. thought she was above the fray. And she thought she could will and Russiagate her way into victory. It didn't work. And she and the Democratic Party still are dodging accountability for it. Yeah. People in Pennsylvania voted Obama, Obama, Trump. And they didn't do it because of Russia. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, tomorrow on Rising, we'll be back for our full <laughs> review of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. What if I just spent the whole show talking about Zelda Tears of the Kingdom? Tell me in the comments if you'd be comfortable with that. Brianna can just sit there and absorb the things I have to say about it. That would be a show, let me I'll, tell you. I'll Google it. Maybe I'll, I'll find somebody's um, console to play around before I come in tomorrow <laughs> so I can be informed and prepared. Come over. That would be, be a fun time. Right. We'll live stream it. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while you're on the move, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. See you later, guys. See you tomorrow.